Yeah. Uh, welcome to this uh, roundtable on um, um, a typical European way of looking at politics, which is a roundtable on the on the Johan Paulsen's uh, recent book on entitled "Governing Through Institution Building: Institutional Theory and Recent European Experiments in Democratic Organization." Uh, this is a roundtable that is. Uh, uh, composed of uh, Johan, who will give an introduction himself to, to the book, and, to, and uh, then, to, and then uh, Philip Schmidt will follow up with a comment, and uh, Inge Johannes Hahn will uh, also um, has uh, also prepared a comment. Uh, my name is Eric Ola Eriksson, and I'm uh, going to chair this uh, session. So I just uh, use this op opportunity to come with a, a few introductionary remarks. Um, because this book, in a way, reminds me of uh, some of the f some of the foundational or basic questions that we were, that were raised when Arena was uh, founded in 1994. Arena then stood for Advanced Research on the Europeanization of the Nation State and was a 10 years research program funded by the Norwegian Research um, Council. Now it stands for, now it is, now it is Arena Euro, Center for European Studies under the Faculty of Social Science at the University of Oslo. But in this initial program, there were some, some, uh, some basic research questions that, that are reappearing now in this, in, the, in this book again. It was, uh, uh, what are the basis for a stable a political order. What are the elements in 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 such an uh, uh, that can be conducive to a stable political order, and and what can students of politics learn from the grand European experiment with institution building beyond the nation state? How can we understand and conceptualize this object politique non identifié as Delors once called it? Do the concepts and theories used to explain the formation of the nation-state suffice in order to explain post-national orders? Or is there a need for rethinking the basic categories in political science? And is there a need of, for drawing on other disciplines like law, philosophy and history? Over the years we can see that ARENA in fact has taken um, um, these initial research questions seriously and has pursued them also in many cross-disciplinary publications. And not surprisingly, one of the headlines in uh, Johan, Johan's book reads, The Way Forward, Back to Fundamentals, Back to British Museum, as there was, uh, it was once called. Yeah. Uh, Johan was, been, was very much uh, aware of the fact that, uh, that uh, the U.S., led behavioral revolution was directed against European, a European way of looking at politics. There was a European way of looking at, uh, at politics which uh, the Americans in this behavioral tradition reacted to. Institutionalism was used as a negative term in those circles. It was excessively formalistic with no explanatory potential. The discipline should abandon formalism and seek realism. However, Johan Paulsen and his uh, co-author uh, James March reinvented the term and gave it a new twist and a behavioral dimension. Neo-institutionalism and the corresponding action-theoretical term, a logic of appropriateness as a supplement to the logic of consequentiality, was very successful in broadening the scope for administrative and political analysis. Now, institutionalism comes in, in very many shapes and forms. But I think there is one, one, one 
core in, in this uh, approach that also unifies the different uh, uses of the term. And, and, and it is this ability to, to give an explanation to, to other regarding actions or desire independent reasons that some would, 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 would talk of. How can there be anything more than self-interest in the public domain? Institutionalism is based on the insight that institutional structures provide rights obligations and duties. They are symbolically structured entities that involve, involve demands, permissions and authorizations which give the actors reasons to act out of duty. They establish so-called deontological powers. Institutions establish standards for appropriate behavior and give actors reasons to act against their self-interest. Uh, Social institutions, social institutions create desire independent reasons and, and in this regard we can have a, a, a better approach of, in order to understand the form, uh, collective action and, and the formation of, of, of larger um, uh, political orders. If one, if one ought to explain collective action or, or the formation of the, and the endurance of political orders, one needs to understand the role of institutions as conducive to rule-driven behavior. Johan will probably deny that this is a book primarily on European integration. And even though I'm not sure about this, I will use this opportunity also to, to mention that the predecessor of this book came out in 2006 in, uh, at the, also at the Oxford University Press. It was, it was uh, European in, uh, in search of, uh, of political order. Um, uh, there is a lot to say about Johan, and I cannot do it because I will use all the, all the time here. But, uh, so I, I will just give the, the floor to him and, and give him the chance of explaining the, the content of the, the book, and then I will introduce the, 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 uh, the two uh, commentators afterwards. Yes, please. Thank you, and dear colleagues. Uh, this book developed in response to four interrelated uh, questions, set of questions. First, is there a need for a theoretical and conceptual revolution in the study of democratic politics and government? Are theoretical ideas and concepts developed in the context of the sovereign nation-state outdated in a world of Europeanization and globalization? Second, is institutionalism a fruitful approach to the study of democratic politics and government? Do institutions have an independent explanatory power in political life, or are they artifacts of the choices of individual actors and environmental imperatives? What can institutional approaches say about the dynamics of political institutions and the democratic instrumental vision of a demos collectively deciding how they ought to be organized and governed? Third, is there a typical European way of looking at politics? If so, is that, and I quote, and you will understand the quote later, an alienation from reality, or is it an adaptation to reality? This in issue involves how institutionalists over time have related to political philosophy, legal studies, and history. Fourth, what can studies of the emerging European political order, and in particular the European Union as a multi-level and multi-centered uh, polity, tell us about political organizations and the question about? Or about? 
generally can studies of unsettled polities and transformative periods shed light upon political phenomena that are difficult to observe in relatively settled polities and stable periods. Of course, this is a rather tall order, and given the title of the round table, it is natural to give priority to point three. But let me mention that the book has four parts. The first, there is a brief introduction to this democratic instrumental vision of citizens able to organize and govern themselves politically and to improve their lives through institutional design and reform. Second, a near 100-page long essay on what students of political institutions and democratic politics in general can learn from this grand experiment of institution building and polity formation going on in Europe. The third part deals with what I have called three unifying controversies in the study of political organization, change and continuity, central authority and institutional autonomy, and bureaucracy as both a threat and a necessity. And fourth, there is a short epilogue on political science as an architectonic discipline or as an academic carrefour, an intersection of a variety of disciplines that have had things to say about politics, governing, and political institutions. As footnotes, let me also say that this is a book about political analysis, and especially institutional analysis. It's not a book about the European Union. An empirical analytical study of how democratic politics and government works in practice, not a normative study prescribing how politics and democratic uh, government should work. It's also an attempt to understand what I have been doing over the last 40 years. When I started political science here at this university in 1963, a revolution was taking place in Norwegian political science, away from a basis in law, history, and the history of ideas, and towards an empirical discipline rooted in American behavioral political science, with Dahl, Lipset, Easton, Deutsch, and many others as the great stars. And finally, this is also part of my continuous efforts to use organization theory to make sense of political decision-making and also how institutions emerge, are maintained, and changed, and what difference they make. Let me then return to the question, a typical European way of looking at politics. The U.S.-led behavioral revolution, to a considerable degree, was directed towards what David Easton called the European way of looking at politics. Institutionalism was an invective. The state was a term to be abandoned, and legal approaches were portrayed as excessively formalistic and outdated. A subcommittee of the American Social Science, this is an important committee, of the American Social Science Research Council, it was a committee on the research in comparative politics, and Gabriel Oldman was chairing it. And it claimed, and here comes the fairly long quotation, I'm sorry, with noteworthy exceptions, the study of continental European political institutions still tends to be dominated by this historical, philosophical, and legal emphasis. And with all the refinements of European legal scholarship, the richness of the European historical tradition and its philosophical and theoretical sophistication, 
the branch of political science discipline which deals with continental European government and politics has not been able to escape a certain alienation from reality which always results from too great an emphasis on the formal aspects of institutions and processes. This was written in 1955 and had important impact. In brief, the behavioral revolution was a reaction against an old institutionalism that involved atheoretical historical descriptions of political institutions, maintained unclear boundaries between normative reflection and analysis and empirical observation, and gave priority to the legal basis of government. That is, the constitution was treated as a proxy for political order, legal organization a proxy for political organization, and law was conceived as the primary instrument of governing. What was lacking was a behavioral theory of political organization based on empirical analysis of the living institutions and their practices, explaining how political institutions are differently organized, how they work, and what effects they have. Since then, there have been a development from the behavioral revolution's criticism of formal legal approaches through an area of political sociology, then political economy, and to the new institutionalism in the 1980s. Institutionalism uh, has moved from being the discipline's prügelknabe uh, to a widespread attitude, and I quote the president of, of the American Political Association, we are all institutionalists now. And as usual, when such a claim about agreement in a discipline like political science, it's always due to the fact that different schools define institutionalism or whatever in different ways. But this book aspires to contribute to the development of institutional approaches, and a key to understanding what the book is all about is a distinction between what is called political institutions in everyday language and institutionalism as an analytical approach. Political science has always studied what is called political institutions in everyday language. Institutionalism refers to a specific way of looking at these political study objects. And institutions, as I use it, implies a set of behavioral rules and practices prescribing appropriate or exemplary behavior for specific identities or roles in specific situations. These prescriptions are embedded in structures of meaning, which explains and justifies the prescribed rules and practices, and structures of resources, which make it more or less possible to act according to to those rules and prescriptions. Behavior is primarily rule-driven, and institutions are assumed to have an independent explanatory power, making history inefficient. That means adaptations between actors' intentions environmental imperatives and institutions are problematic. There are frictions involved and adaptation does not usually generate enduring equilibrium solutions. Let me then mention a few of the conclusions of the book. The starting point was the claim that theoretical ideas and concepts derived from studies of territorial nation states are outdated. They are usually They are not useful for understanding processes transcending the state. The political world is changing and our theoretical ideas and concepts also have to change. The book cast doubt over this claim. 
It holds that all theoretical ideas and concepts work fairly well in the new European context. There have been more import than export of theoretical ideas to, to uh, European studies. However, concepts are dynamic rather than stat static, and sometimes conceptual change and changes in the vocabulary of politics are themselves endogenous to political processes. Institutionalism also seems to work fairly well in a differentiated and dynamic world. Different institutions are founded on different normative and organizational principles that are often very difficult to reconcile. Political actors act in a context of norms and rules, but usually in context, different concepts, concepts with competing norms and rules, routines, and standard operating procedures. And I argue that democratic hopes cannot rely solely on the electoral channel and competitive elections, parliaments, and political parties. The book contributes to understanding how different behavioral logics are legitimated in different institutional contexts, how different logics may be ignored, challenged, changed, or replaced, and how the power relations between institutions within a democracy may change over time. The book also suggests that institutionalists need to give more attention to what these signs are both empirically viable and normatively attractive, including the conditions under which citizens and their elected representatives are able to shape the institutions under which they are organized and governed. Furthermore, institutionalists have to study these questions not solely in the context of the grand power struggles and principles at constitutional moment and historical junctions, but also in practical interactions, in practical situations, the actual dilemmas and conflicts of everyday politics and also administration. There is little evidence that there is a typical European or American way of doing political science. From time to time, there have been discussions about what this discipline is, what it can be, and what it should be. However, several state-of-the-art exercises have shown that political science on both sides of the Atlantic is heterogeneous. It's a heterogeneous collection of subject matters, approaches, theoretical ideas, concepts, and methods. 35 years after the assessment of the European political science, Oldman published his a discipline divided, schools and sects in political science, portraying students of politics as sitting at separate tables. A similar conclusion is suggested by attempts to take stock of European political science, including the recent 2010 celebration of the 40th anniversary of European Consortium of Political Science. The discipline's heterogeneity is also illustrated by the multi-volume Oxford Handbook of Political Science with Bob Goodin as the chief editor. There are, nevertheless, differences to some degree reflecting distinct historical experience, traditions of acting and ways of thinking in both terms of political ideologies and academic discourses. Political science in the U.S. has on average being more individualistic, making rational actors the preferred analytical entity, and drawing relatively more on ideas about voluntary exchange, competitive markets, neoliberal political ideology, and neoclassical economics. In comparison, European political science has more often embraced collectivist normative ideas and has seen the polity as constituted by institutions. Interpretations have reflected different national traditions, but also a general 
emphasis upon the state, the Rechtsstaat as well as the welfare state, rule of law, corporatism, corporatism, uh, socialism, Marxism, and bureaucracy. Arguably, Europe is again facing a collision between individualist and collectivist traditions, and it's hardly an alienation to attend the importance of legal rules, historical traditions, and normative theories of good and bad government in this situation. It is at the same time not likely to be productive to go back to the older ways of re relating to law, history, and political philosophy so strongly attacked by the behavioral revolution. Much remains before competing disciplinary traditions in the study of, of politics can be reconciled. But my guess is that in order to be more than an intersection of disciplines interpreting political life, political science have to develop further its own identity and academic core. Then it will be also more able to contribute to a fruitful dialogue with the other disciplines from which it has received both inspiration and competition up through the ages. The book holds that a theoretical conceptual revolution is unnecessary because existing theoretical ideas and concepts have been informed by two and a half thousand long European traditions of normative reflection, empirical observations, and speculations about political life. Institutions and worldviews are also sediments of interpreted historical experiences. Lessons about what had been working well or badly, what behavior had been accepted as appropriate or not, and normative ideas about not only expected utility, but also about what is true and false, good and bad, just and unjust. The different lessons encoded in the institutions of different parts of the world provide different building blocks, enabling and hampering political developments. There is a different genetic soup of ideas, concepts, institutions, and resources. And in Europe, myopic Brussels-watching may fruitfully be informed by more attention to these building blocks inherent in some old and enduring controversies about political organization, politics, and government, and thereby the fundamentals of political analysis. What kind of explanations are then likely to be fruitful in capturing political developments? Among the ideas explored in this book is Weber's 1904 program for a Wittlichkeitswissenschaft. Weber argued that truth about social life requires a social science with a strong interface with the humanities, Geistenwissenschaften, more than with the natural sciences, Naturwissenschaften. At issue is how generalizable are studies of political life and how dependent are they on contextual de details in time and space. The book suggests that there are fairly stable patterns to be observed, but there are hardly any context-free universal laws. In political life, there is room for choice and chance as well as destiny, understood as structures and developments that are very difficult or impossible to change during a generation. Politics and government are influenced by and are influencing living institutions and practices. The political world observed is a world of interdependent variable, more than a world nicely divided into dependent and independent variables. Finally, the book argues that there are things to be seen in unsettled polities and transformative periods such as the one Europe is currently involved in. Things that cannot be observed easily in settled polities and stable periods. 
10 lessons which I will not repeat here are suggested. However, the book observes that in fairly stable periods, attention is usually linked to substantive policy making and possibly to efficiency issues in terms of achievement of stable or predetermined goals. In transformative periods, there is a need for an enlarged concept of political effects. Attention is directed more towards how political institutions affect the possibility of political community and civilized coexistence. Orderly rule, orderly change, legitimate normative standards, political language, and the ability to live with unresolved conflicts and standing antagonism. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for, for this introduction and for the kinetic, kinetic European soup. Was, yeah, this was an interesting concept. But now it is uh, time for Philip uh, Smitter, which we are very honored by, by the presence of. It was very good that he could make it. I think he came almost all the way from China to, to, to get it. So uh, very, uh, he's a, a traveling guy. He has been traveling all his his life, I think, and he's continuously uh, traveling. But um, he had his, um, he earned his PhD from, uh, from Berkeley in, uh, yeah, some years ago. And then he, <laughs> and then he was a professor at, he has been at the University of Chicago and at Stanford and uh, uh, we know him recently from, from the European um, University Institute in, in Florence where he has been um, uh, for a, some more yes. So it is. Uh, yeah, it, it is very. We are very honoured by your presence. He has. Uh, Peter has been very important to us uh, for, for, for uh, many things for many and, for, and uh, up through the years. But he has also uh, contributed a lot to um, not only to European studies and uh, and uh, why we should other other about European democracy also. But uh, but he has made a lot of contributions to comparative politics. To, to regional integration in Western Europe and, to, and the transition from authoritarian, authoritarian rule in Southern Europe and in Latin America and, uh, and, also, the, and also all his work on, on corporativism that we know from, uh, from the 70s. So we are very pleased that you, uh, that you had time to come here and we very much look forward to your comment. So, please. Thank you very much. I especially thank Ragnar and his colleagues and all those who had the idea of inviting me to this colloquium. It's always a pleasure to be in Oslo, even in the depths of winter. And it's a special pleasure to be here to honor Johan. We have a rather long friendship and colleagueship, especially due to Stanford and a few other things. I gather that my first obligation is to investigate and ascertain la provenance of Johann's work. That is to address or the fact that where does he come from? Intellectually, not necessarily in formal terms. And then I will say a few things about the content and contribution specifically to his understanding of European integration, or even more specifically to the under our understanding 
of the European Union as what he calls an unsettled polity. I should note at the beginning, however, that Johann makes two presumptions. One, that the EU is already a polity and inferentially not a state or even a proto-state. And two, that it is seriously committed, if not irrevocably destined, to becoming a democratic political organization. I point this out because many students of European integration would not agree with either one of those initial assumptions. I do, so I accept those presuppositions. Now, la provenance. At first glance, Johann is not a European. He's a transatlantic scholar, like many of his and preceding and succeeding generations of political social scientists, beginning with Stein Rokan, of course. After World War II, the traffic across the Atlantic, mostly from Europe to the United States, now perhaps a little bit more balanced than in the past, became very intense, and many of its most creative political scientists had studied, taught, and collaborated with American political scientists. Even a short glance at the references in his book would reveal a rather even-handedness. I didn't count noses, but an even-handedness between references to American and European scholars. Although I have to note that every one of his references is in English, <clears throat> even if many of their authors happen to be Germans and some Swiss and, and two Italians, right? Machiavelli and Gian Domenico Maioni. Right? So, at least two Italians. There's literally not a Frenchman or Spaniard in sight, if, unless you count Montesquieu and de Tocqueville, and not a Spaniard there. So this tells us something about not just Johann, but about the state of scholarship on these questions of organized political or politics. However, unlike some of his westward fellow travelers, Johann has quite self-consciously avoided being overwhelmed by the fads and fashions of American political science. Indeed, some of his most focused and, in my view, most justified criticisms are aimed at both the behavioralist and the rational choice claims that have been advanced in the United States to disciplinary hegemony. He has drawn richly from his American exposure, especially, of course, his lengthy collaboration with Jim March, but retained his European roots. So, Johann is a European political social scientist, by which I mean the following. One, he respects the fundamentally historical nature of political processes and events. Two, he is sensitive to the interdependence and complexity of these processes and events across as well as within national borders. Three, he is reluctant to attribute linear or even any discrete importance or determinate importance to the effect of single institutional variables or mere aggregative combinations of them. These two together, I think, define what we've come to call 
contextualist type of interpretation, which I think is one of the most distinctive features of European social scientists compared to American. Fourth, he recognizes that there is no distinct strict separation between the factual objective and the subject, symbolic subjective accounts of politics and accords greater importance to understanding the latter than to explaining the former. Fifth, he nurtures throughout the volume a healthy skepticism concerning, quote, the efficiency of history with none of the American optimism for either market competition to produce the best possible distribution of benefits or electoral competition to produce the most legitimate and responsive political leaders. He does not, sixth, conceive of organized democratic politics as converging toward a single institutional configuration, often suspiciously similar to that of the American Republic, but as protecting a variety of such configurations. Seventh, finally, he advances more questions than answers. However, more accurately, Johann is a Nordic European political scientist. I may be sensitive to this because I've spent a number of years recently in the other part of Europe, and these are characteristics which I doubt if most Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, or Greek political scientists would accept. So he's Nordic, by which I mean the following. One, he emphasizes the problem-solving more than the conflict-resolving nature of politics. Two, he asserts the political primacy of permanently administered and governed organizations over the more autonomous and uncoordinated efforts of individual citizens, social groups, or ideological movements. Three, he conceives of these political organizations, institutions, as basically benign, even benevolent, rather than as potentially malignant and even tyrannical. Four, he is confident that real existing democracy, i.e. democracy as currently practiced by self-declared liberal representative constitutional democratic regimes, is still capable of generating political legitimacy, even if he does not rely or think it regarded as relying exclusively on the electoral process to produce this effect. Five. He tends to be deeply ambivalent in his observations and assertions, and usually prefers to adopt a cautiously intermediate response to anticipated or hypothesized outcomes. Hence, you will discover in the book, a frequent recourse to either or, neither nor. So we get a description, observation about institutions, and it turns out that they can do this, but they can also do that, and we are so to speak, has to fill in the blanks as to what explains one or the other. Six, he defines politics in terms of actions concerning the whole, presumably national, community, rather than as a struggle between parts of that community. And seven, he presumes that in an organized political community, an embedded and civilized logic of appropriateness will prevail over the, the momentary temptations of a logic of opportunism. All of those, I think, make him more northern than southern. Mm -hmm.
Now I want to turn to his lessons. I had originally hoped to have, I don't have enough time to speak to all ten of his lessons, all of which are interesting and provocative. I obviously don't have that time, so I will concentrate on just one or two. So I have now located, I hope, Johann spatially, culturally, and stylistically. I will now address briefly the content of its book and our contribution to potential understanding of the EU and its role in the European integration process. Let me just note in passing that in common with much of the literature, Johann concentrates on the EU with the implication that it is the only, or the certainly the principal, organization producing European integration. In fact, European, particularly conceived of as Europeanization, is produced by a much greater variety of organizations, some of which have absolutely nothing to do with the European Union. But there's no doubt of the centrality of the European Union in his thinking and, I think, in the process itself. Now, I will not bore you or him with the recitation of all the things I admire about this magnum opus, and it is that. It's the culmination of an original and distinctive career, bringing together disciplines and sub-disciplines that ordinarily have not spoken to each other. Moreover, I'm not, hard, I'm not competent to do this, since, except for an occasional bout of co-authoring with Wolfgang Streeck, I have rarely myself tried to combine organization theory with political analysis. And I confess that I put down the book my mind was full of novel concepts and provocative observations that I had not used or thought of before. Let's start. So I'm going to concentrate not so much on what I agree with, but what I disagree with in Johannes' book, and I'll focus on, let's say, two of the lessons, of the ten lessons that he offers. I'll start with his second lesson. Available theoretical and conceptual tools are useful, not outdated. I find it hard to disagree with this if one means only those tools that are deployed at a very high level of abstraction and accompanied by considerable ambivalence concerning their anticipated effects. The issue of their utility, however, becomes much more salient when the assumptions and concepts are applied to guide research into specific processes or policies, generally, of course, by or usually by generating potentially falsifiable hypotheses, and always, in this case, by shifting the level of analysis from or beyond the sovereign and national state. Being told repeatedly by Johann that given an, give an organizational conviction, configuration, the results may be either A or B without specifying often the intervening mechanism or mechanisms that might cause one or the other can be a frustrating experience to the conceptual potential consumer of this, of his organizational political theory even if, empirically speaking, the caution about outcomes is warranted. But more important, in my view, is the shadow that the state, even worse, the nation-state, casts over virtually all aspects of our conceptualization of political organizations. Wisely, Johann does not refer to it, i.e., the state, and he repeatedly and extensively uh, refers to the state in the first pages of his work, and then it disappears. 
He very self-consciously refers only to the European polity and never to the European state, which implies to me that he is both aware of and has reservations about transferring deeply embedded notions of stateness as the natural arena for political organization to the regional or supranational level. He is similarly cautious when invoking the generic capacity of such organizations to generate distinctive identities and does not presume that the mere existence or the operation of the EU will generate an eventual European collective identity that will be in some way analogous to the national identities prevailing in its member states. Now, I'm convinced that there is, I use this German word, dringen, uh, pressing, emergent, uh, urgent, urgent need to deploy new concepts and assumptions when studying the EU by purging them of their assumptions or embedded assumptions about stateness or at least sensitive to the weakness of the stateness in the case of the EU. And I've even tried myself to develop some of these bizarre new concepts. The other thing that surprised me a bit is that Johann doesn't seem to be aware of or he doesn't want to be aware of the fact that the EU is itself generating a new vocabulary, mainly what sometimes we refer to this as Eurospeak, right? So the actors themselves, not necessarily academics, who work within the institutions of the EU find it necessary to continuously generate Sometimes they take them from a national vocabulary of one kind or another, but the application to the EU is often quite novel and novel in organizational terms. For example, I give you a list. Subsidiarity, proportionality, juste retour, cometology. I see Christian in the audience. Uh, transposition, direct effect, variable geometry, concentric circles, pooled or shared sovereignty. This is but a sample of the perhaps 200 or so words that have been generated inside this process precisely out of the need to create a new vocabulary for understanding the EU and European integration. Second, and I think I have to conclude with this, <clears throat> his third lesson. Studies of unsettled polities may provide interesting insights. How could I possibly disagree with this? I spent a good deal of my recent career in studying the dynamics of regime change from autocracy to democracy since 1974. And in doing this, I and my fellow so-called transitologists found that we literally had to reinvent democratic theory and in the process reject much of the preceding wisdom about the alleged social, economic, and cultural prerequisites for democratization. So my experience suggests, yes, interesting insights can come from unsettled, or as I would prefer, transitional uh, political context, but they are not so likely to be confirmatory of the existing wisdom as Johann claims. 
This is not just a matter of the need for a new vocabulary and a set of, and set of root assumptions. It also entails novel methods for observing and measuring political phenomena. Simple transpositions of routine methods from settled polities to unsettled polities, I'm thinking particularly of the reliance of, upon survey research in transitional periods, may generate unusable or irrelevant data in such uncertain contexts. Now, I would admit that the politics surrounding the EU and within it are not as unsettled as, say, in Albania or Mongolia. As Johan argues, the EU has a vastly richer and more successful set of ingredients in its member states to draw upon. Which does not, however, convince me that the genetic soup, as he calls it, that emerges to become its preferred consensual and presumably legitimate institutional configuration will be easier to produce or tastier to its consumers. One of the advantages of having a poor genetic mix to choose from, if you are in an unsettled polity, see Albania or Mongolia, is that the actors involved know this and are much more receptive to dependence upon foreign advice and assistance. The EU has no such analogues and no outside suppliers of wisdom. It represents an unprecedented organizational effort whose consequences are intrinsically difficult to predict, and there are few reasons to suppose that transposition that to suppose that configurations that have worked well at the national level, even within Europe, will do the same at the supranational level. And the classic case of this, of course, is federalism. And to make it even more difficult, we all presume that whatever does emerge from this organizational politics of the EU <coughs> will not be an outcome imposed by force or threat of violence by one or a group of its actors. At the national level, certainly historically and even contemporary terms, this deus ex machina of violence was an indispensable component of the integration process. See the American Civil War. Do I still have a few minutes? Where am I? Okay, I can get in the, I can get in the third one. My <clears throat> reservations about Johann's fourth lesson. Quote, key institutional ideas, or key ideas in the institutional approach have fared well. This would seem to follow directly from the second lesson, that, quote, available theoretical and conceptual tools are useful. But Johann immediately follows this explanation with a caveat that, quote, empirical observations offer both support and challenges to his approach. In the text, I could not find any unequivocal empirical evidence of faring well. Indeed, Johann himself, as his first lesson warns us, that in the case of the EU, it would be, and I certainly agree with this, especially problematic <clears throat> to disentangle disciplinary effects. And as I said, I agree with that. Perhaps the confirmation is to be found somewhere in the numerous citations to case studies of specific dis, uh, decisions or whole policy arenas. 
But to repeat the point I made above, Johann's usual style, when resuming the evidence or observations, as he calls them, of others, is to stress the ambivalence of such outcomes and of the evidence itself. The contingencies of interorganizational interaction are such that whatever did happen could always have happened differently, depending, and even more so, in an unsettled politics such as the EU. My impression is that the institutional rules of the EU provide a much more opaque guide to behavioral outcomes than in its more settled member states. The massive effort expended to try to codify and extend these rules, institutional rules, that is to say the attempt to, quote, constitutionalize the EU was a miserable failure. The abbreviated Lisbon Treaty does not come even close to settling most of these ambiguities, and it was only ratified in extremis. Just an example. There are many ins whoop, what the hell's the rest of my thing? As an example. There are many instances in which, I'm really lost here, anyway, in which um, formally a qualified majority voting would be a sensible way of arriving at decisions more rapidly. But the actors within the EU expend great and presumably unnecessary, at least from a formal point of view, effort to reach a compromise, which subsequently is often revealed to be unworkable and almost always suboptimal. Items do not even get onto the agenda of the Commission unless they've gone through an abstruse process of consultation, which, as I say, we don't know about. Right? I suppose that Johan would reply that this only proves his point, namely that the rules defined in that famous logic of appropriateness at the level of the EU are implicit and informal and likely to remain that way for the foreseeable future as long or at least until the EU gets settled. The old-fashioned term in Eurospeak for one of the EU's key principles or practices was the so-called Monet method. A great deal of inconclusive discussion and has involved trying to define what this was, but there's a general agreement that it was an appropriate and important instrument for advancing the integration process. There now seems to be a similar general agreement that it has declined in effectiveness and may no longer exist. What, I ask myself, can institutional political theory contribute to our understanding of why this change has occurred and what, if anything, has replaced the decadent and presumably no longer effective Monet method. I can understand why, as a highly complex institution, the EU needs a logic of appropriateness, but how does it acquire this and what intervenes to change it even after it has acquired it? I'm not satisfied, and I'm not satisfied with the answer that this all happened simply because its membership changed from 15 to 27, although that's one tempting notion. Anyway, congratulations, Johan. You have made us all think differently about the European Union and its impact upon European integration. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, uh, now we need a perspective from law, not only because this is a cross-disciplinary program, which um, in involves both uh, um, the faculty of uh, law and, and the faculty of um, humanities, but also because um, Johan has always said that we should take law seriously in, uh, in political science, and, and this institutional perspective is designed to, to, to do that. So, so we are glad that um, Inge Johannesson has, um, his, uh, has volunteered to, to, uh, to, um, to comment upon this, uh, this book, and she is a professor of law at the University of Oslo, which she became a professor in 2002. Uh, Inge Johannesson has worked... Um, um, also, uh, other places before before coming to the to the university and uh, at the uh, Ministry of um, of Finance also, and uh, and she was also by Arena for a for a period of time, and and was also affiliated with the uh, the so-called loose loose program in uh, in uh, from the Research Council. Um, uh, Honda is a uh, person who takes uh, the, the cross-disciplinary perspectives seriously, and she has worked uh, in cross-boundary teams, like um, in, in administrative law, in constitutional law, in European law, environmental law, legal um, uh, sociology, and legal uh, theory. Her doctoral dissertation was on, on administrative and organizational legal reform in public administration in 1985-19. And 94. So we're very pleased to, to have you here and to look forward to, to your comments. Uh, thank you uh, so much for inviting me here, and uh, it's a great honor to uh, be invited to comment on uh, Johan's latest uh, opus um, uh, in such a setting as, uh, as this. Uh, and, uh, uh, but giving a comment to um, such a book uh, by Johan, which is written as a very personal, as a very accumulated account of his work on political theory over uh, many years, um, is something I do with much respect and uh, humility. Uh, he has a supreme knowledge and overview of the field of political theory, including the exchange between the European and U.S. traditions. This book is very a quintessentially uh, Johan book uh, that also makes it uh, difficult and uh, challenging to, uh, to comment on. Uh, uh, so I uh, will do so from uh, my uh, perspective, which then will be the, the legal perspective, because that is uh, where I think I primarily will uh, be able to make some more rewarding uh, remarks. This is also done, uh, I think, with a view to the many cross-disciplinary uh, discussions we've had over, over time. So I come to this field of institutions, uh, governing, and public administration from a different academic position, that of law and legal sociology. I will thus observe the field from a different context and with the legal knowledge as much of the empirical background and theoretical normative background and my comments will bear the marks of these perspectives. I have, however, worked with Johan on uh, several occasions previously. We worked together both on a governmental commission, and I was, we worked at the LOOS program and the ARENA program, and uh, we've had uh, a cross-disciplinary dialogue over many years, uh, 
concerning also how to do cross-disciplinary dialogue. And uh, uh, with a view to uh, the necessity of it, uh, with a view to uh, a very common interest uh, in the theories, uh, the, theory, uh, the discipline and the tradition of institutionalism uh, and the old Staatswissenschaft, um, and uh, this is a dialogue which we have uh, in no way finished and uh, problems solved. But uh, the exchanges have always been extremely rewarding. Um, so I also will view this book from uh, the point of view of um, how does it fare on this, in this, as a cross-disciplinary uh, contribution and can we move even uh, further. Uh, institutionalism as a theoretical approach has many qualities in terms of connecting different disciplinary fields, such as political theory, organization theory, constitutional theory, and law. But institutions and institutionalism will, uh, as we will see, still appear as different in the different disciplinary approaches, partly because the disciplines will look at different material, partly because conceptual structures are different and the concepts may be applied within different contexts. So that's also challenging because it might mean that we often use the same concepts but when within different uh, conceptual contexts and uh, a lot of hidden different uh, contexts of, of meaning. But that's, uh, I think, an unavoidable aspect of this. Uh, before I go on, I will um, say, um, uh, I will sum up some of my main views which I We'll go through uh, in, uh, in this comment. Um, first, uh, is this book on the EU? Uh, I have read it more as a book on the EU than Johan is willing to admit, uh, but I think uh, unavoidably, if you write about European governance uh, at this point, it will have to be, uh, and European institutions, it also will have to be about the EU. Uh, uh, secondly, um, I will also argue that the EU and the case of the EU strengthens a lot of the arguments of institutionalism as have been uh, accounted in, in the book. But I would also say that it uh, could be an even further renewed focus on the arguments of co-evolutionary and complex processes among different institutions. I will argue that some of the changes we've seen among EU institutions and between EU institutions and nation states have been at times surprising, unexpected, unintended consequences. So there is more a huge uh, and extremely complex uh, and uh, uh, chaotic uh, also institutional uh, evolution. Um, third, uh, I will argue that uh, uh, institutional theory also could profit more than uh, is accounted for in this book on from the use of more legal material, concepts and perspective, and also from insight in economic theory in, and dynamics. I will argue that uh, in the EU, uh, the uh, emergence of uh, law, legal institutions, uh, also as part of the political, and also the uh, economic discourse have been extremely vital uh, discourses and processes, and that the EU gives a renewed occasion to view the interaction between the political, the legal, and the economic, both on the, uh, on, the, on the empirical level and on the conceptual and the theoretical levels. Uh, so much of my uh, comment will, will be concerned with that. Um, uh, 
there's also a discussion in the book, are these concepts of the EU new or are they not so new? Um, I think it's, uh, as I said, it is uh, at times very difficult and complex to know whether a conceptual, um, the use of concepts and theories represents something new or if there is uh, continuity. And I think in our discussions, it's often been the case that I have more argued for a change and you have continuity of, of the traditions of, and the disciplines. Uh, I think this um, uh, may uh, this be uh, that as researchers, we sometimes look more for change, sometimes we look more for continuity. There are both uh, all the time. And I totally agree with uh, the chapter uh, he has written on change and, and continuity. But looking at specific cases, one might emphasize one or the other. Um, and also, uh, six, one, one, one more point to start with. I think uh, to defend more the, uh, the focus on interdisciplinary work on institutions, on political institutions and on the EU, I sometimes suspect that many analyses of the EU underestimate the changes which have been done to the political institutions due to the lack of sufficient cross-disciplinary dialogue, that sometimes some of the things which happen occur sort of between, in between the disciplines, and because we respect each other's uh, disciplinary boundaries, there are also some changes which are uh, described as less radical than they really are. Okay, I will then uh, uh, go further on in my, uh, in my comments. Um, uh, changes in the material we study, political institutions, have also increasingly opened up the field for more cross-disciplinary approaches. Partly the concept of the political, what is political today, has to, is now being discussed, and partly what occurs within what we call political institutions is arguably uh, and increasingly being differentiated. Politics, law, economics, public administration, and scientific expertise are all uh, rationalities or communications to be found within what we today call political or political legal institutions. And it may be argued that they have become, the political institutions have become increasingly differentiated. The emergence of the EU has uh, additionally contributed to this differentiation. The legal and the economic aspects have become, I will argue, more relatively significant and relatively autonomous also within the emergence of political uh, institutions. Uh, New ways of thinking about political organizations have thus uh, emerged, and the necessity of cross-disciplinary work seems increasingly accepted. Uh, I think this book de definitely contributes to this, uh, but I also think there is, uh, there is a way to go from, uh, from this point. Uh, I, uh, if I then go more further on to uh, the book, uh, now Philip Schmitter, uh, commented uh, more distinctly on uh, the, um, the ten lessons. I will also do that. It's the ten lessons and uh, the conclusion, which you also have in the first chapter, where you have the greatest summaries of, of your books. Um, you argue in the uh, first chapter and also in the ten lessons that static categories are of limited health, that old institutions are replaced by a complex layering of both old and new institutions, and that attention to substantive goals have a strong competitor in form and process of institutions. You argue that the legitimacy of institutions is assessed on the appropriateness of structures, procedures, and behavioral logics. It further argues uh, 
the book further argues that the organizational change often is an ecology of interacting and co-evolving processes. I uh, fully agree with, uh, with these points. But when we then get to the more specific analysis of the EU and institutional uh, change, I uh, have some more critical comments and questions, uh, emphasizing again the cross-disciplinary character of the dialogue. So I have to admit that I was slightly surprised when I read uh, that, you write, the emergence of the EU has had a modest impact on the theoretical ideas, concept, and vocabulary used to make sense of the emerging European polity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this conclusion is, however, much more nuanced formulated in the 10 lessons on political organizations at the end of the chapter on, uh, on European institutions. I agree, uh, as I said in these 10 lessons, that available conceptual tools are not outdated, that a lot of the tools, concepts we use from the nation states still are being applied in the EU. I also agree that it is difficult to disentangle the disciplinary effects of recent institutional developments. But I also admit that I interpret uh, many of the institutional changes which the EU has brought, both to the EU and to the nation states, as more... Uh, as much more radical uh, uh, changes than uh, follows from some of the observations of of your book. This may be because we look at different data or or that we interpret data differently or that there are different ways of defining change and continuity. So I I do think that the emergence of the EU has contributed to new ideas, concepts, and theories concerning political institutions and political authority and the relations between the polity and political acts. This is also not a normative view, but a view based on the assessments of what is happening. Uh, Seen from a legal and a social-legal point of view, the EU has, on many dimensions, uh, meant a radical shift in what a political and a legal institution may be and in how such institutions may be assessed and in what concepts we apply, both concerning the legitimacy and the functions of the institutions. Uh, so um, the first, uh, my first general point will then be to say that the EU has created a double structure of nation states uh, and a European community uh, in, uh, in Europe. This has also been the genius of the EU. There, is, there are two levels. Both the na- you have uh, still extremely vital nation-states institutions and you have a very uh, vibrant, alive, comprehensive, fun- well-functioning European level. So the EU has, uh, for the first time, as an international organization, also created extremely comprehensive uh, uh, institutions with very comprehensive competences and also very politically active uh, institutions. So you have these two levels uh, working at the same time. I don't think there, uh, the one level uh, replaces the other, and I think we, we, we agree on, on that one, but I think one can even further uh, emphasize that the EU has brought a double level uh, to this, with, uh, with, uh, uh, which both are uh, uh, extremely alive. I would also argue, and I think uh, uh, Philippe uh, Schmitte was uh, also commenting on this, the instruments and the concepts of supranationality, direct effect, supremacy, and many of the other concepts are 
uh, new and still underexplored concepts into an understanding of, of what political institutions are. Because this is very much seen from a legal point of view, in the legal uh, analysis of the EU institutions, the concepts of supremacy, direct effect, and supranationality, and how these uh, elements have emerged have been extremely vital. But my argument would be that the legal analysis of this should also contribute more to the political analysis of these institutions. Uh, uh, and because of this, also legislative processes have, uh, have been significantly changed. Uh, I'm using my time here, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. Lunch is <laughs> rapidly approaching. So. Yes, yes. Uh, in addition to this, um, uh, the double structure and the supranationality of the EU, the EU has also brought vital changes to the economic structure, uh, of the EU. The, the way uh, the free movement of goods, services, persons have been formulated by the Commission and by uh, the Court, this has been done very much without, uh, outside of the political fora, but by administrative and legal institutions, but with huge political uh, uh, impacts, I will argue. Um, the EU has also given uh, a much more distant relation to the citizens. The EU has created a new type of polity with much more distance between the citizens and the political institutions, even the political institutions with the supreme authority of legislation and administration. I would also argue that the EU has contributed to changing vitally the uh, relations between law and politics in the political, legal, uh, constitutional field. And that this is maybe a field where, which we should uh, pay more attention to, to in, in, in the following. And that, uh, I think, also the contributions from the legal uh, field, the legal analysis of some of these institutions uh, should be uh, paid more respect to and that uh, this could further the cross-disciplinary dialogue. So I, I think my further arguments will have to wait for another setting. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. As a, uh, but lunch uh, is rapidly approaching, so what can we do? But uh, I think that we do it like this: that if there are a comment or two from the audience, that would be uh, we could take that, and then Johan could give, give the last, give a kind of response at at the end. Uh, is there anyone who would like to take the floor? Yes, there is one over there. Uh, my name is Jung from Norwegian Center for Human Rights of this university. And I do appreciate, uh, thanks for the three speakers, and I, very much, and I do appreciate Professor Olsen's, uh, your great contributions, and uh, actually we took your theory as uh, one of the inspiring sources for our research. And our research is to cooperate with China to study the, the democracy, rule of law and human rights, you know, in the transitional process. So our ambitions actually try to describe what the institutionalized normative political or legal order of China and uh, try to explain why it's like that and uh, try also exploring the possibilities or alternatives for the institutional building and, uh, and for the future China polity, for example, uh, later on. So I actually would like you to make a, perhaps very short comments to uh, your organizational uh, theory-based institutional approach. Do you think your uh, approach can be uh, used for us, you know, help us for this exploration, um, the significance and also perhaps the difficulties that, uh, could you uh, reflect a little bit on that? Thank you very much. Yeah. 
thank you. I have not been informed that lunch is postponed with 10 minutes, so you can <laughs> relax a bit. So if there are more who would, uh, would uh, ask questions, we have room for that. Yep. Damon Coletta from the U.S. Air Force Academy here visiting for, for six months. And I have a similar question, I think. Uh, I, I would like the panel to comment on whether these ideas uh, apply to NATO. There was a bit of debate about whether the book was about the EU. So let me propose it's, it's not about the EU. It's about NATO as well. And get your reaction to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is. Uh, uh, yeah, there is a lot to uh, to respond to. You, know, you see, you are uh, you are asked for in in, uh, in several uh, fields here, several more fields here. So, uh, so <laughs> there is more, more more job to do. And I think also, uh, what this is, well, uh, you can raise some uh, some questions that will um, that we will also have to um, attend to to later on. And so, um, so, but uh, you, but um, would you like to respond uh, to to the commentators? Yes. The one comment, uh, thank you both for, for the comments and for the questions. The comment I most agree with is that he has advanced more questions than answers. <laughs> when I was 19, I was pretty sure that I knew most things in this world. Since then, it's been deteriorated. So I'm usually now asking more questions. But political science and the study of politics needs good questions, not only answers. Some of the problems is that my two commentators don't believe me. They don't believe that I'm writing about political organization and that I would like to ask the question, what can students of political organization learn from the European Union? I'm not, and I say that very, very explicitly, <laughs> I'm not, we have two sets of lessons. The one lesson is basically that uh, we have the European Union and we ask what kind of approaches can help us explain that one. I say, that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is to say that, well, we have certain theories about how institutions develop and how, what kind of effect they have and so on. Uh, what can we learn? Exactly, what can we learn from this experience with, with the EU? And certainly, I wouldn't mistake Eurospeak for analytical tools. Uh, that would be a strange way to do it, because most of these, these, are, these are instruments for, for, for doing politics, but they are hardly very good. good uh, and also, I, I would never imagine to deny that the EU has changed the world, that there are empirical changes. What I'm saying is that when I look at the export-import kind of balance of, of concepts, ideas, and theoretical uh, inspire, uh, inspirations, I see more floating from the disciplines to... to and I'm talking about political science now. I'm not talking about law. That could be very different. Um, that more floating into it than, than uh, out from it. You don't see the standard journals overwhelmed by studies that say, hey, we have studied the EU and you have to change this and that and that kind of assumption. I don't see much, much of that. Institutional approach. I think one of the important things that institutional approaches have been, uh, been criticized for is that they can explain statics but not dynamics. And what I'm trying to do here is to say that, well, listen, one of the reasons why we now have a dynamic in Europe is exactly this institutional differentiation. The kind of the classical or the, or the pillar type of institutions of democratic politics, market economy, uh, the Reichstag and, 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 and science, and, and also increasingly religion. 
I mean, these kind of different logics of appropriateness, because each of these spheres define a different logic of appropriateness, and when they collide, you have some of the most important types of conflicts in, in, uh, in, in, in political life. So, so I am interested in how, how uh, in, a, in a time when most people look at how can you understand innovation and change, and I'm, I'm much more impressed with the question, how on earth is it possible to have a political community or a society in a, such a differentiated world with, with, which, with, with all these tensions. So, so what I'm saying is more like, who is it that we don't resolve most of the conflicts, but exactly that we are able to live with, with what John Stuart Mill called these, uh, these standing antagonisms in, in society. And there I come back to this, this kind of, remember that a logical appropriateness is not a normative concept. It's as defined in a certain culture or subculture. So each of these institutional spheres that I talked about, starting in Europe with the split between church and, and state, and then the coming up. What I'm doing here is exactly to go in and ask how we should not start with assumptions about human nature as static and universal, but rather to see how in different spheres different kinds of people are fashioned. That we shouldn't start with assumptions of, of a human actor of a certain kind, but, but be, be interested in how education and how socialization fashion people in very, very different ways in different, in different spheres. And how from time to time you have a division of labor and you have a division of power, and in other they collide. And, and at the moment in Europe you both have collisions between national traditions, but also between institutional spheres. For instance, the university are invited by a fairly imperialist type of idea about a private firm and how, how that should affect how we reorganize the university. So, so in many ways, I, I, I know that one, one of the logic of appropriateness don't break into people's lunchtime. <laughs> but I don't see that many import, exported uh, types of useful analytical concepts from the studies of, of Europe. I see that the institutional approach is pos it's possible for, for it to contribute to understanding of dynamics and institutionalizations and not only to, to static categories. We, we can discuss whether, whether Europe is a state or not. We can make fourfold tables of different but, uh, or static categories, but what I'm trying to do is to understand some of these basic types of, of, of processes. Actually, when you look at the literature uh, at the end of the 18th century, uh, like 1890 and so on. you had this discussion, especially in Germany among philosophers and lawyers, whether the U.S. was a state or not. I found some of these books uh, at sale at Stanford, and, and it's interesting. They asked these questions, is the U.S. a state or not? The Americans didn't, didn't care about whether they were, were, were categorized as a state or not. I think many of these discussions are not very, very useful in the European context. Either. I know I should, should stop. Let's say... Could I say just about what, what to explain institutionalization? The farthest I can go to say that is that it seems like we have a certain repertoire of, of change processes. We know something about how systems learn, how they adapt, how things diffuse, how, how they bargain, how they argue, and so on. And I cannot do very much more than to say that 
usually, if you go into an empirical area, as, as we do now, whether, whether that is, is NATO, whether it's China, whatever it is, the, the, the best thing I can do, I cannot give you a, a, a recipe of, of how, to, how to do that, but I, I could give you a repertoire of processes that I think are relevant. And I think it's important that we talk about institutionalization and not only institutions, that we talk about organizing and not only organization, and so on, that we try to get more into the, the processes and understand, understand how they are doing, and not only on, on, the, on, on the static categories. But I don't think that is an institutional theory, in spite of the fact that we have so many, that, that could give you a good answer or you a good answer. But I think there are elements that are useful to start with as, as, as a repertoire. And to finally t say to, say to uh, Philippe, uh, Albania and, and, and others, well, still I would like to, to have the European uh, soup rather than Albania. And also that if you look at the time after 1989, I think that exactly the willingness to listen to consultants coming from the West and saying that if you only have a pure market, everything else will come along. That, that's not very helpful in, in developing, <laughs> developing a country. So, so that process of listening to others and, 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 and Better than coping them to themselves is as dangerous <laughs> as is could be useful. And that's, again, an Olsen type of... <laughs> I think that's the most certain. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I have to...